You are listening to the Piedmont Church Podcast. To learn more about Piedmont Church, including our gathering times in Macon, you can visit us online at piedmontchurch.net. I want to tell you a quick story about a guy named Adoniram Judson. In 1812, uh, Adoniram had been a Christian by, for about two or three years. Uh, he and his new wife of two weeks decided to go into the mission field and become missionaries. And so they set sail for Calcutta, India as missionaries. Upon arriving in Calcutta, uh, it was a decent uh, boat ride. Uh, both uh, Adoniram and his wife Anne had sort of changed their doctrinal beliefs. They were originally sent as Presbyterian missionaries, but uh, along that boat ride, they uh, wrestled with the question of baptism, and so um, they no longer believed in b- infant baptism, which is what Presbyterianism uh, believes, and so they converted, I guess is the word you would use, to uh, being Baptist. They believe in believer's baptism. Now, this is Im- important because they left as a brand new married couple to be missionaries overseas with the full support of the Presbyterian Church. But by the time they arrived at their mission location, their doctrinal beliefs had changed who they could then be supported by. And so they still decided to be missionaries, but yet now they no longer had any full support from a denomination or a network of churches. So Adoniram and Anne were kind of at this place of going, what do we do next? And so instead of saying, staying in Calcutta, they set out to a place called uh, Rangoon, Burma, uh, or Burma at the time, I should say. It's now called Yangoon, Myanmar, and uh, they had been told by several people, hey, don't, don't go to this place. Uh, Buddhist temples are, are rampant. They do not want outsiders. They don't want Christians, uh, but yet Adoniram and Anne felt a, a, a real calling to go there and to begin to share the gospel, and so they would scrape everything that they had together to go and try and be these missionaries there. And for the next 10 years of their life, that is what they did. They became missionaries in this foreign land. They learned to speak the language. They would build relationships. And they eventually even translated the Bible into the native language so that they could more effectively preach the gospel. Their family was arrested numerous times over various issues, most of them always circling around just the fact that they were present and preaching the gospel. Over their 10-year span of ministry there, 18 people would come to faith in Christ. Uh, Judson, I believe I have a picture of him here, would establish this church, which is still standing today, as a result of these believers coming to faith in Christ. Now, give you a little bit of background of of this place that they went. The population in Yangon today is approximately 7.3 million people, and approximately 3.2% of them identify as Christians, and a large portion of that, I would say, goes to the faith and the devotion of Adoniram and Anne, while the other 90% of the population would identify as Buddhists. I didn't give you a ton of backstory on Judson's life, but 
really quickly. He grew up kind of knowing of God. I don't think you could grow up at that point um, not knowing of God because atheism and all that really wasn't a big deal. And so really kind of everyone revolved around this idea of God, whether they believed or not. But, but one specific day stopped him in his tracks, and that's when he became a, a, a follower of Christ. And that's when he gave his life to Jesus. He was staying in an inn shortly thereafter college, and he heard the person in the room next to them just in anguish. Uh, later, Adam Iron would go on to say that the anguish that he was hearing seemed a lot more spiritual than physical, but it was certainly physical as well. There was something going on. Adam Iron would wake up the next morning to find this roommate, so to speak, in the next room dead. Upon his discovery of this person who is now dead, it happened to also be his best friend. I got him Jacob Eames, who he was unaware that they were in the same inn at the same time on the same night. He would reflect about this moment, and he would look back, and he would think about the, the moments that he had with his friend, and the conversations that he would have with his friend. And Jacob was, although it wasn't really a, a, a popular idea, Jacob was a pronounced agnostic, or some, would I, some might even say atheist. So as Adoniram is wrestling with this passing away of his friend, he couldn't help but think his friend was hellbound. This all became very clear and very real to a young Adoniram. So he promptly went home, decided to give his life to ministry, began raising funds to go overseas, be a missionary. He met his wife, told her the plan, and you've already heard the rest of the story. And I wanted to tell you this story about Adoniram's life to ask you one question, to really lean into to, to one thought and one idea. If we were to write a story about your life, how does your trust in God navigate the plot line of the story? So think about Adoniram's life and the story that I just told you and the plot line that really drove all of it. How does his trust in God navigate his plot line? How does your trust in God navigate yours? Today we're going to be closing out a series discussing faith foundations. And our discussion today really centers around this idea of God's sovereignty. If you're not familiar with that word, it's in control, his all power, his, he knows all things. Uh, if you're a Marvel fan, it's kind of like that moment, that moment excuse me, uh, where, where Thanos is kind of like, I am inevitable. Uh, obviously, he isn't because that doesn't happen, but uh, spoiler alert, 10 years later. So the question and the title for my sermon today is, his sovereignty doesn't rely on your faith. And so what we're going to try to get to and what we're trying to understand is a little more of God's sovereignty and how this text unpacks the Lord's sovereignty in front of us. And I want you, as we're discussing this, as we're thinking about our individual lives, I want you to ask the question of how much do you trust in God's sovereignty? How much do you believe in the sovereignty of God? Because this is important, right? I mean, if we're going to trust our eternity into, we'll just say, a being, how much control and how much power does that being have in our life? How much control and power does that being have 
in general. And so we want to wrestle with this question, and then how, how much does his sovereignty have to do with our action? And how much does our action have to do with his sovereignty? So I want to set the scene for the moment that Kaylee just read in Scripture. So Jesus has been healing people. He's been going around the towns, and he's been helping those in need. He's been pouring into others who were in need of physical help. He's been exercising demons. He's recruited followers. He's preached to the masses and even to small crowds. He's raised people from the dead at this point, and now he's going to get in a boat and go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So everyone in this boat would have a, an awareness, a, maybe a distinct re remembrance of these moments that they have seen Jesus live through. They have seen the healings. They have seen people raised from the dead. They have heard his proclamations, and they have seen him when he's all alone. So there's some integrity that's happening there. They, they have a, a unique relationship with this Messiah. Let's look at the scene one more time. Luke chapter 8, verse 22. It says, One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. Now imagine this moment. Here you have at least four experienced fishermen. You're going to have Peter. You'll have Andrew. You'll have James. And you'll have John. Four people who a storm would have been some, somewhat normal to them. Now, we don't know how large this boat was. We don't know what Luke means when he says the disciples. Some would say that this is kind of a, a larger gathering than the twelve. This could have, uh, if you look earlier in some of Luke's passages, this could have included some of the women and some of the, the men who maybe didn't fit that twelve number. A lot, and I would say most theologians believe that this is kind of a smaller number. This is, that, this is those 12 disciples. These are those people who Jesus specifically looked at and said, come follow me, and then brought them into his inner circle. And so you have these experienced fishermen along with others who may not be that experienced with water and boats, and a storm comes in. Think about how these fishermen would have reacted. These are people who a storm would have not shaken them to the core. This would have been part of normal life for them. This was nothing new. Storms were just a part of at least four of their normal jobs, their livelihood. Think about the storms that you're used to. The ones that you've learned to navigate, possibly like these fishermen. The things that work in your job when you're speaking to somebody else who has a similar career to you. You know what I'm talking about. Maybe it's somebody new. You've met them hanging out at a conference or over dinner or somebody's friend, whatever, and y'all find out you're in the same 
workforce or you have a similar background, you start, you start having conversations that at times kind of feel like, you know, an, in, an inclusive conversation. Uh, my family, or Amy's family, I should say, they're my family, but they're her, you know, blood, right? They are, for the most part, a military family. Her two brothers have served in the military. Her father served in the military. Her mother served in the military. Her grandfather served in the military. So when they get in a room, they start speaking military language. And you know what the rest of us do? Anything else, right? So the, they have things in common. They have conversations and, and history and past. And so when storms arise that kind of float in that world, they can have a conversation that makes sense. And, and when things go awry in the government or whatever happens here and there, they're having some conversations that are a little different than maybe some of us who might be freaking out about something over here or over there. Think about that in your life. Think about the storms of parenting. For those of us who have been new parents, you know, when that baby coughs the first time, you're freaking out, right? But the, the people who have had three, four, five kids, that fourth and fifth one, they'll be all right. You know what I'm saying? We just learn how to kind of make it through some of these storms in our life. When, if you're a nurse or a doctor, when, when health scares happen in your family and to you, generally speaking, you're the worst patient there is, right? Because you know it all. And you kind of deal with things a little differently than some of us who maybe don't work in the health profession. For those of us who experience loss and grief, when more moments like that happen to us, we've already kind of gone through some of these things. So we know how to walk through some of these difficult storms, similar to how these disciples were in a storm in this boat. Through life experiences, we've kind of been trained on how to handle the storms of our life. And, and many times, because we know how to, what don't we do? We do not stop to ask God for help. We navigate through these storms without Him. Or we think without Him. And I want to ask a question. I want to I put our minds back to a thought with this storm. What if the presence of the storm isn't an indicator of the absence of the Lord? What if the presence of the storm in your life isn't an indicator of the absence of the Lord? I think you and I are a lot like these disciples who in the moment of the storm, we have forgotten that Jesus is still on the boat. And so we start trying to figure out how to navigate through the storms before we ever go to the Lord. But it is only when the storm has gotten too large for you or for I to handle, that is the only time that we go to Jesus and go, whoa, 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 wake up. There's a storm. As if he wasn't aware. And that is what we see from these disciples. Continue on, verse 24. What happens when they've started to realize? It says, they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. We're in danger. We're going to die. It says he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. 
as we learn about the sovereignty of God and discuss it this morning, I want you to understand three attributes that collectively make up this idea that we say sovereignty. There's three attributes that really paint a picture for the sovereignty of God. The first two I'm going to go over very quickly. The third one is the one we'll lean in a little more heavily this morning. The first one is omnipresence. It is the idea that God is ever-present. He is present everywhere. Omnipresence. If you're thinking about some, a, a being who is in complete and total sovereign control, one of the characteristics that lead to that sovereignty is that they are in control of things that are not necessarily happening where they are, or I guess a better way to say it is, they are everywhere, so there's nothing happening where they are not, if that makes sense. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. The second understanding to, to kind of wrap our minds around the sovereignty of God is that He is all-knowing. So as you try to wrap your mind around an all-knowing, infinite being, you need to remember that you are not all-knowing, and you are finite, and so his ways are higher, and so there will be things that you will not completely understand, but your lack of understanding does not mean that he is not all-knowing, or that he is not in control, or that he is not ever-present. The third and the last one that we're going to dive into a little more, because it's specifically outlined in this text, is the Lord's omnipotence meaning his all power, his complete and total control. Omnipotent comes from the, the, the first phrase, phrase in there is omni, meaning um, all, and potent, obviously, meaning power. So here, Jesus comes in and calms the storm. Previously in this gospel account, we have seen Jesus use his power. We have seen him use all sorts of attributes that point to his sovereignty, but we've seen him do what? Raise people from the dead. We've, we've seen him heal the sick, and we've seen him cast out demons. Here are other places in Scripture where, where God's omni, om, omnipotence excuse me, is on display. Job 42 two says, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. Notice, in the beginning... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God all things, not some things, not most things, all things, were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that actually was made. So Jesus' authority is on display to both the disciples and to you and me. Specifically, think about this, this story. Jesus is on a boat asleep, the disciples run into a storm. They run to him and they say, hey, we're going to die. And he calms the storm. A question that we need to ask as readers, as disciples, the people trying to understand God's word and God himself is why? Why would Jesus allow this storm, this moment? Was it happenstance and Jesus just they just happened to wake Jesus up at the right time. And so he awoke and said, oh, don't worry about it. Or was there a plan? Was there a, a process involved? 
Let's go back to the verse. Luke chapter 8, verse 25. I don't think I have that one. I missed it, sorry. Luke chapter 8, verse 25 says, He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? Here is why. Because the miracles of God deliver the miracle message of the Messiah. Why does Jesus allow this storm to happen and then fix the storm? Calm the seas. Calm the winds in front of the disciples. It's because he knew that they weren't getting it. He knew that through all the things they had seen thus far, they still weren't getting it. And let me just put some comfort to you. You know, let's get to the climax. And They still won't get it for many, many weeks, months, and some even say years. They still won't get it. Like they will see Jesus do miraculous things time and time and time again, and they don't get it. It isn't until they see a crucified, resurrected Jesus standing in front of them that they go, oh yeah, you're the Messiah. And so when you think about your struggles to believe, remember theirs. That should be an encouragement to you. It should be a thing when when you're going, I'm struggling to trust that he is going to get rid of this storm. Remember that the people who saw Jesus, hands, feet, walked, heard, ate with him, lived with him for years, watched him do the miraculous so that he could reveal who he was to them, they still struggled to believe. Even after seeing everything that we've discussed, the disciples struggled to have faith. Well, what else? Well, why were they struggling? You might ask. Well, here's the deal. If you'll go back to that that text, the end of verse 25, it says, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? So even in the question, they're not necessarily thinking Messiah. What are they thinking? They're thinking Old Testament prophet. They're, They're thinking this is another Elijah. This is another prophet who is doing mighty works of God, but is not necessarily God himself. And so Jesus is going to continually show up, continually show up in the storms of their life, in the moments to prove to them who he is. And that is something that if you'll leave the door open, he'll show up for you. You know what I mean? Like, here's what we do. We say, God, you never showed up, but yet we never left the door open. We never even gave an an opportunity to move in our lives. We were completely hard-hearted, like Romans 1 said. And because we were hard-hearted, what did he do? He said, okay, if that's what you want, go ahead. But yet the disciples were open. They were searching. They were confused, but they were open to hear from Jesus. Who are you? I mean, they got in a boat with him. They've seen him do all these miraculous things. They've left family members. They've left jobs. They've left friends to follow him. And some of us would go, I don't know if I could ever do that for Jesus. I don't know if I could ever be Adoniram Judson. 
He's not calling you to be Adoniram Judson. He's calling you to be you. So you may ha- you, he may be calling you to take steps that are similar to Adoniram Judson. He may just be calling you to take a step at your office place on Monday morning. He may be, taking, he may be calling you to take a step at your home as a parent, as a friend for someone. He may be calling you to have a hard conversation for the betterment of the kingdom. But here's what I do know. He says that if you knock, he will answer. Are you knocking? Are you open to see the miracle message of the Messiah? Or are you closed? Are you not open to know who he is? I want to look at this boat moment. And I want to try to take a couple steps back and look at it from like a 30,000 foot angle. And I want to ask this question. Do you believe that Jesus was in control the whole time? So when Jesus looks at them and says, hey, let's get in the boat and let's go across the Sea of Galilee. Let's leave what we know and go into the unknown. Do you believe that Jesus was aware, not just of the risks, but do you, do you believe that the storm was present because Jesus allowed it to be present? Was this storm a surprise? Could it have, have been a test in some way? I, I, I don't know if you've ever heard this saying before. But there's a kind of a saying in, in Christendom, and Christianese. It says, don't pray for patience. Why? Because he'll give you opportunities to show it. You know what I mean? Like, the moment that you begin, God, make me more patient. Make me more patient. He's going to bring opportunities for you, if you're a believer, who's empowered by the Spirit, meaning you can do all things through Christ, It's not that you can do them, but what he does them through you. God, give me patience. And then you wonder why you catch every red light to work the next day. You know what I mean? You wonder why this storm comes your way. And and, and look, I don't want to trivialize red lights. Because some of us, like that's a real deal. You know what I mean? Like when you're in a hurry, like red lights don't bother us until we get in a hurry, right? You're, you're, You're 20 minutes ahead of time, ahead of schedule at work. Ah, red light, let's just crank the music up, crank the podcast. Let's sit back and chill. We're just coasting five minutes late for work. Get out of the way, right? Like, turn, come on, change, go, take that red, take that right turn. You ever sat behind that person on a red light and they got their blinker on and turn right? There's nobody coming and they're just daisy. They're just sitting there. And you're, I mean, I'm freaking out, you know. Like, I, I don't care what mood I'm in. I'm like, you take that right, like, this is the proper thing to do. You are breaking the law right now, you know. Pray for patience, and God will give you opportunities to show patience. Maybe this is one of those moments in the boat where Jesus is giving them an opportunity to build, develop, and show faith. Jesus was giving the disciples the opportunity to make their trust in him be what navigates the plot line of their life. He wasn't saying, hey, write your own story. What he was saying is, trust in me and I will write it for you. 
And let me be the thing that navigates the plot line of your life. Someone was uh, telling me a, a story the other day. I think it was about leadership. I think it was in our MC. And they, he was talking to a guy about, man, trust and following God or something like that. And he goes, look, he's on the phone. The guy goes, hey, take, take out a piece of paper and a pen. And I want you to write down the top five priorities in your life. Write down the top five things that matter to you. So the guy starts writing, you know, one, faith, God, whatever, right? Two, family. Three, uh, I, I want to be, you know, a great employee. Four, I don't, I don't know the whole list, right? And he reads them back off to the guy, and the guy goes, yeah, you missed it. He goes, what are you talking about? I got God first. I got being a great husband, being a great father, being a great friend, being a great employee. Like, what else can I go? And he goes, no, you're missing the whole thing. See, God is the paper. And the eight in me was like, bro, that wasn't an option. You told me to write like one, two, three, four, five. You didn't say the paper was an option. But I think we get the story, right? We get, we get the picture. It's, it's instead of making a list, God is the foundation of a list. Uh, I, I like to look at it like he is the, the ripple in my pond when the rock is thrown. You know what I mean? Instead of making a list of the top priorities, he's the rock that's thrown into my pond, and then every ripple in my life comes from him. He, he's the prime mover. He's the thing that started everything else and where I find meaning from everything and everyone else. Do you let Jesus lead you and let him write your story. Storms are opportunities for you to trust that Jesus is in the boat with you. How can you trust in God so that he will navigate the plot of your life? Like, think about that. Think about your daily routine. Your marriage, your relationships, your friendships, being a good boss, being a good employee, husband, spouse, parent, whatever that looks like. Like, how, how do you trust in him to let him navigate the plot of your life? Jesus is putting on display in this story and firsthand with those disciples that the storms are going to come. And the storms are not necessarily a bad thing. The storms may be gifts to us to help us, to help lead us to this place of trust and understanding in who He is. And so when the storm, storm comes your way, don't fight the storm. D don't look at it as necessarily the enemy. Maybe start looking at the storm as an opportunity to trust in God. I, I think like the big like Fortune 500 companies and all this, when, when somebody messes up at their job, they don't have like those pieces of paper that are discipline reports. They're like opportunity for growth reports, right? Think of the storm in your life as an opportunity for growth. You know, when inspired by the Holy Spirit, James writes, I consider it, I consider it joy to go through various trials. We read over that and we gloss over it and we go, yeah, 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 yeah. But like, what if that was the mindset of the disciple? Of you and I who follow after Jesus, 
when we're struggling with something, when there's a storm on the horizon, we see it coming. Instead of preparing our battle station, what if we retreated into Jesus' battle station? Like, what if, what if we lived a, a posture internally of instead of trying to fight every battle, lean on the God that is in control of the storm in the first place? Because if he's been faithful to his disciples in the past, and the Lord knows he's been faithful in my life in the past, then why wouldn't he be faithful now? Like if he's been faithful through the difficulties, the tragedies, the loss, the struggles, why wouldn't he be faithful to the future ones? Because they're coming too. So as you're praying and seeking Jesus, in these next steps, these next days, whatever storms are on the horizon for you, or maybe you're living right in the middle of one, I just want to encourage you that Jesus is on the boat with you, right where you are. Don't try to handle the storm yourself. Go down and say, Jesus, how would you like me to proceed? What's the next steps? How can I trust in you more? And I think his answer is simple. It's, 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 it's the gospel. And I think sometimes like Christians be like, ah, it's got to be more than that. No, 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 listen. Here's the gospel. You can't do it. But he did. You can't do it. But he did. So don't trust in your power your understanding, and your knowledge, but lean on His. So turn from your ways and turn to His. That's what the gospel is. So why don't we live that out every single day as a people of God, looking to love Him and love others and invest in His kingdom. Let's pray. God, give us that courage, that boldness, that humility to be able to understand that we don't have all of the answers. And with the storms come in life, yes, you've given us discernment. You've given us unique abilities. You've given us all these things that we can handle a lot. But like the good Father you are, what you want us to do is to run to you first to seek your face. Rather than trying to handle the storms of life, maybe because we don't trust that you're there or because we don't believe that you will fix anything, God, help us to surrender to you. Help us to do like we sang, to follow you anywhere because you are the cornerstone of who we are. God, you've been faithful then. Give us the faith to believe that you are faithful now. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Let's stand up and let's worship the king.